Hello, my name is Joe Schwartz, and I would like to take a moment to tell you about my podcast. It's called Still Unknown, and it's a podcast dealing exclusively with unsolved murders, disappearances, unexplained deaths, and other unsolved mysteries. If you are a fan of the classic TV show Unsolved Mysteries, then you'll definitely want to check out my podcast, as many episodes deal with cases featured on the show that still need answers. So look for Still Unknown on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And let's solve some mysteries together. Forensic Miles. My name is Miles. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Sean. Forensic Miles is the unofficial companion podcast to the cult favorite show, Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? This episode, there is a lot more. (laughs) But before we get into it, I want to say thank you all to everybody who has left a review or given us feedback. We really appreciate it, um, and we just want you to know it's never our intention to disrespect or offend anybody but we really appreciate the opportunity you guys are giving us to grow and learn more about podcasting and better our episodes it's what it's all about and our storytelling yes we're just we're learning we're trying to get better um so we really appreciate it and we love all of your comments so yeah thank you that's all i wanted to say and without further ado let's get into this episode so today we are doing another um episode in our killer collection and this killer's name actually he is a presumed serial killer um his name is lucius boyd so i'm going to be telling this case a little bit differently than some of the others i've done in the past because the crimes that this man did go far beyond what was covered in forensic files and the murder of Danya DaCosta marked the end of violent crimes inflicted by Lucius Boyd. In the Forensic Files episode, the case is called Church Disservice, but like I said, this one goes way past this one murder. Boyd was born on March 22, 1959, in Broward County, Florida. He was one of ten children and fell somewhere in the middle of the family. His family owned Boyd Funeral Home in Fort Lauderdale, and both his mother and his father worked there. The funeral home was very successful, and it gave Boyd's family kind of a lavish life, a beautiful home, a successful business, but Boyd wasn't really as motivated as the rest of his family. He worked at the funeral home along with all of his siblings. They engaged in all kinds of work from greeting the families to embalming the corpses, and he was described as a charmer. His position in the community only enhanced intrigue, although it didn't take long for women in his life to realize that he was never going to settle down and that he didn't plan to take responsibility for his children, of which he had eight. Eight kids? Eight children. Wow. Edna Bergs, who has two children with Boyd, described him as a playboy, but she was always 
charmed by him. She said that when they first met, he was a sweet guy, that all the women were interested in him, and that he never had any issues with women. There isn't much out there about his personal life, but what does come up when you search the name Lucius Boyd is a slew of murders and rapes with Boyd as the main suspect. In fact, some of the investigators refer to him as Lucifer. Jeez. I don't think I've um, heard of this guy before. Other than the Forensic Files episode, I really haven't heard of him either. Locals believed that Boyd was a serial killer and that he used his family-owned funeral home to dispose of the bodies. It's a pretty good resource to have. Yeah. Now, keep in mind that Boyd is only convicted of one murder and rape, that of Donya DaCosta. But what I'm going to tell you now are the stories that linger around him, the unsolved cases with Boyd at the center point. I got most of this information from an article from BrowardPalmBeach.com called Lady Killer by Bob Norman, published on September 23, 1999. The article covers the life and arrests of Boyd, a man who seemed to conveniently avoid conviction. Unlike his family, in particular his father, whom he had on a pedestal, Boyd was never quite able to get his life together. He struggled with addiction for a long time and wasn't able to hold down a job, meaning he definitely wasn't sending child support for his multiple children. His mother even fired him once from their family business because he hadn't shown up to work. He was, you know, in hard times. At this point, since he couldn't hold down a job, he was living in his family's large house. He always had an unpredictable personality, scattered with violent tendencies. In 1999, Boyd was charged with aggravated battery against his second wife, Julie McCormick. The charge was reduced, and Boyd made it out without any charges at all. He didn't even get probation. Hmm. Seems a little bit too convenient. Mm-hmm. In 1992, Boyd was accused of raping a girl during her 18th birthday celebration, like at her party on her 18th birthday. The survivor chose to drop the charges with Boyd, and he was never prosecuted. One of the investigators on that case said, quote, no victim, no crime. In 1993, Boyd and his girlfriend's brother, Roderick Bullard, got into an argument. Boyd ultimately stabbed Bullard to death with a kitchen knife. During his trial, the defense claims that it was self-defense and Bullard was high on coke. The jury acquitted Boyd and he was once again set free. I mean, at this point, this is three years and like three pretty violent crimes. Mm -hmm. You would think like the judge would have to step in at some point. You would, but nope. A couple years later, in 1997, a woman, I never found her real name, so we're going to call her Lucy, stopped by the Boyd's family home and decided to go dancing with Boyd at the Baja Beach Club. He was consistently coming on to her, but Lucy was not having it, and she tried to kind of distance herself from him and stop him, showing him that she was not interested. They decided to go to the beach, Boyd driving Lucy's rental car. When they were there, he convinced her to go out onto the sand. He said he, quote, wanted to feel the sand in their toes. It is is a nice feeling. Okay, but not this night. 
She explained that he talked about his ambitions, his dreams. The conversation was good, but she wanted to go home. After a while, Lucy finally convinced Boyd to bring her back to the Boyd home. When they arrived, he turned the car off and began to strangle her until she passed out. This is in his driveway of his home. Why was she wanting to go back to his house after all this anyways? Well, I think she needed to drop him off, exchange cars, so that she could go on her way. Oh. When she woke up from being strangled and passing out, Boyd demanded she give him oral sex. When she refused, he forced it. And then he got on top of her and he raped her. She said she kept thinking, quote, I can't believe this is how I'm going to die. When he was finished, he let her leave, threatening her and telling her not to tell anyone, including the police. Lucy did everything right in this case. She immediately went to the police. She reported her attack and believed that it would be all over. You know, Boyd would get arrested and she would be able to start her healing process. Unfortunately, this was not the case. Boyd was arrested for this charge, but was out on bond in no time. He was acquitted of the crime in 1999, one month before Danya's murder. During the trial, the defense attorney blamed it all on Lucy. He said that she wasn't wearing underwear that night, so she must have been asking to be raped. She also had been drinking that night, and even though the investigators on the scene specifically said that she was not or did not appear to be drunk only moments after the attack, the jury believed it. Huh. They said that Lucy must have been jealous of all of Boyd's women and that she wanted a piece of the Boyd's fortune. They also claimed that because she was good at martial arts, actually, she, I think, had at one point been invited to go to the Olympics for Taekwondo. Um, but that because she was good at this, she should have been able to fight Boyd off. So the only reasonable conclusion to that is that she must have strangled herself. <sighs> what, to give him a chance? <laughs> yep. And all of these wounds were self-inflicted. Like, there is no other possible story that would make more sense other than her strangling herself. Yeah. Anyway. Of course. Yeah. He must have had a really great lawyer because, like I said, two years later, he was acquitted of this crime. On August 13th, 1997, the same year, Boyd raped another woman, Michelle Galloway. It was a super hot day that day, and she was walking down Hillsborough Boulevard. A man in a truck pulled up to her and offered her a ride. The man inside, who was Boyd, of course, looked safe enough. He was well-spoken, clean-cut. She trusted him and took him up on his offer. She hopped right into the car. Michelle said she was headed to the Women's in Distress, a woman's shelter for abused women. To get there, she needed to take a bus from the tri-railed station. So she basically just asked if Boyd would take her to this train station. Instead of heading towards the station, Boyd got on to I-95. When she mentioned that, she was, that he was going the wrong way, he told her he knew where the shelter was and he was just going to take her there. It started to get late and kind of dark, 
She didn't really know where she was, and he still hadn't dropped her off at the shelter. He was going all sorts of different ways, just driving around. This sounds terrifying. Yeah. When they were stopped at a red light, he pulled a knife out and put it to the back of her neck. He then drove to Oswald Park, where he forced her to give him oral sex, while he lit up a cigarette and filled it with coke. She could tell that they were close to tennis courts because she could hear the ball bouncing and the rackets hitting it. Like, she could tell that there were people right outside. Michelle was a survivor, though. That's all there was to it, and she was not about to die at the hands of Boyd, so she came up with a plan. Boyd was smoking that cigarette, and as he was doing it, the ash was falling on her face. Oh my god. So she started to yell. I'm on fire! I'm on fire! You caught me on fire! She wasn't on fire. But this did give her the upper hand and just enough time so that she could grab the knife out of his hand and bite him. Dang. The commotion soon got the attention of some passerbyers and 911 was called. Although, you're going to get really angry with how the police (sighs) um, acted at this crime scene. When the police arrived, it was one officer. He pulled up and he took the knife, I presume, out of her hand. And he put it in his patrol car. He then walked directly to Boyd and asked what had happened. Uh Boyd said that Michelle was a sex worker and had pulled a knife on him when he didn't pay her the full amount she was owed. He then began taunting her. The cop did. Michelle explained that she wasn't a sex worker and that she was simply on her way home, but the officer was not listening. He said that he didn't believe she could have, been, have overpowered Boyd, and that since Boyd was the only one with cuts or wounds, she was more likely to be sent to jail than he was at this point. Oh my gosh. When Michelle asked where the shelter was, because let's remember, she had no idea where she was, the officer stood there pointed, and said, two miles that way. Oh. Michelle walked to the shelter alone in the dark after being violently attacked by Boyd. And just alone again for Boyd to just, like, pull up on her. Exactly. Boyd was able to go his merry way. The officer... Never ran Boyd's name, and if he had, he would have noticed that he had multiple arrests. He never wrote a report, and he lost that knife. So did this, when did this all get figured out? Like after he was arrested, mm-hmm. and then she came forward? Well, this officer actually did get in trouble because he literally disregarded a survivor statement and pointed her in the direction instead of driving her there himself which he should have done yeah seriously um and he was punished this officer who had done such a horrible job with this quote-unquote investigation was suspended for three days without pay that's it he claims as of when this article was written that he did everything right Michelle later went to a detective who actually did believe her story, but at this point, the case was already pretty much a failure. The cop didn't believe her, made it clear he didn't believe her, and he had lost the only evidence that they had had. So there wasn't really much she could do. Even though she did everything she was supposed to do, 
nobody helped her. Yeah, I mean, it almost would have just been better had the police not been called. Mm, She could have just... Taken the knife to a detective and said, this person attacked me. Yeah. And believe it or not, this day wasn't over yet. The same day, August 13th, 1997, the body of 24-year-old Melissa Floyd was found. Presumably pushed out of the car on the side of the freeway in Palm Beach County on I-95. It took a few months for her body to be identified, but when it was identified as Melissa's, they discovered that she had been addicted to drugs and would often smoke around the Boyd funeral home, which is also where Lucius Boyd smoked and and hung around. Mm. In fact, and this is absolutely insane, the Boyd family found her ID on their property. The body wasn't found on the property. The body was found on the freeway. Her ID was found on their property. And her mother was shocked by this. She was like, nobody would ever have her ID other than her. Like, there's no reason. She always had it on her. There was no reason it should have been anywhere other than with her. Boyd was once again a suspect in this case. However, they were never able to find conclusive evidence pointing directly to him. And there was one mention that if that knife hadn't been lost, it might have given them a clue to this murder. Oh, was she stabbed? I'm not 100% sure, but they, they felt like that could have given them some information. Mm. Dang. Moving right along to another case, 19-year-old Patrice Alston, otherwise known as Treese, lived close to Boyd Funeral Home and would sometimes spend time with Boyd, although they weren't dating. Boyd actually had a girlfriend at this point, and he decided to borrow her car one day. Geneva Lewis, Boyd's girlfriend, um, lent her car to him on June 28, 1998. Treese got into the car with Boyd for a trip to Winter Haven. Boyd returned the car on June 29th, the very next day. However, Therese was nowhere to be seen. In fact, no one would ever see her again. He came up with some weird story about how he had fallen asleep on the side of the road and pulled over. and It was just this bizarre story. But the fact of the matter is, he never gave a good excuse as to why Therese never came home with him. You know, Therese didn't live in Winter Haven. She lived there so there was no reason she wouldn't have come home unless something sketchy had happened investigators always suspected that boyd knew exactly where Teresa's body was and they felt that it might be somewhere on the 200 mile stretch between fort lauderdale and winter haven which a police spokesperson described as quote the longest most boring drive of your life you could be out there forever and never find it unquote he means the body. Teresa's close friend claims that she thinks drugs might have had something to do with it. That when Boyd was on crack, he became a completely different person, and even the most seasoned addicts were afraid of him. Yikes. This brings us to December 5th, 1999, the case that is covered in forensic files. 21-year-old Donya DaCosta was going to school to become a pediatric nurse. She was saving herself for marriage, she was working to help her family pay bills, and she was a part of the church choir. 
She spent a lot of time at church, sometimes praying until 1 a.m., like she did on the day that she was murdered. Friends would describe her as, quote, saintly or, quote, angelic. Her sister, Rochelle, described church as much more than just a place of worship. It was a place to catch up with friends and socialize, and it was a big part of her and her sister's lives. They would go there three to four times a week. Typically, Rochelle and Danya would go together, but on the night of December 4th, Danya went to the midnight service alone. Sometime during the night or early morning, Danya's mother, Daphne, knocked on Rochelle's door to see if she had seen her sister. They all lived in the same house. Immediately, Rochelle knew something was wrong. The family began looking for Danya with no luck. Her mother drove to the church to check and see if she was still there, but Danya wasn't. And then on her way home, she saw something. Danya's car pulled over on the side of the freeway. Danya was still nowhere to be found. It appeared that she had run out of gas, and unfortunately, this wasn't the first time that this had happened. Danya had run out of gas before, and because she had, she kind of came prepared. She made a habit of carrying a gas can in her trunk in case this ever happened again. Investigators noticed that the can was also not in the car, so they kind of went, where's the nearest gas station? Right. It's the most logical next step. Mm Mm-hmm. The nearest gas station was a Texaco, which was within walking distance. They began to look for witnesses, and surprisingly, they found two. Both witnesses said that they had seen Danya at the Texaco that night, and that they saw her talking to a man. They both described this man as a well-dressed, well-spoken guy somewhere in his 40s. They said that they had seen Danya get into a van with him. But here's the issue. One witness insisted that the van was teal blue, but the other insisted that it was burgundy. Oh, wow. Pretty big difference. Way different. There was an interesting clue, though. One of the witnesses claimed that they remembered seeing the word, quote, hope on the side of the van. I think that colors can sometimes be in the eye of the beholder, and people might see them a little bit bit differently, right? Like... Those gray pants you wear, you're convinced that they're blue, right? Are you talking about my blue pants? No, they're gray. They're blue. They're literally gray pants. Blue. They're definitely gray. But see, there's a difference. Although blue and burgundy are very different. Definitely. It was also like one or two in the morning, though. So it might have been hard to see either way. I do think, though, that words are a little bit different. To mix up. Like, if you see the word hope, like, it's hope, you know? The witness later said that she didn't fear for Danya. She said that she thought it was a church van because of the word hope, and she assumed that the man who was driving it was a man of God, and a man of God wouldn't harm her. So she never really thought twice of Danya getting into the car with him. Three days later, on December 7th, 1998, Danya was found. Her body had been wrapped in brown and yellow sheets, as well as a shower curtain. Her head had a purple laundry bag and two large black garbage bags over it. She had been thrown near a dumpster as if her life was meaningless. It became even more clear that whoever had killed her 
thought her life meant nothing. And this is pretty horrific. There were tire marks that clearly showed the killer drove over Danya's body. Ugh. Yeah. During the autopsy, it was discovered that not only had Danya been raped and brutally murdered, she had also been tortured. She had more than three dozen star-shaped wounds on her chest. None of these contributed to her death and were all superficial, meaning that whoever did this did it for the sole purpose of causing her pain. Her cause of death was being stabbed in the skull with the same star-shaped weapon that gave her the wounds on her chest. Danya also had a strange horseshoe-shaped bruise on her forehead and a bite on her right arm. You know how we feel about bite impressions, but this was not what ultimately got him convicted. There were some unique spaces in this tooth impression, but they also found skin cells under her fingernails that did not match her. Eight days after her death, police got a tip. A few blocks from where Danya lived, there was a man who drove a burgundy van. This van also belonged to a church. Police surveilled this man and pulled him over to take a look at the van. When they opened it, they found a dress that matched the one that Danya had been wearing on the night she was murdered. They took the van and ran tests, including tire impressions, but it was soon discovered that the van was not the one that had run over Danya. And believe it or not, the dress found in the van didn't belong to Danya either. They were able to clear multiple other men of this crime and then the case went cold and they felt that they were looking for a needle in a haystack however four months after the murder detectives caught sight of another van and it caught their attention because written across the door was the word hope it was parked in front of the generation hope daycare which was affiliated with the church but not the one that danya went to The owner of the daycare, whose name was Frank Lloyd, said that he wasn't the one driving the van on the night that Danya went missing and was murdered. However, he kept detailed logs of everyone that drove the van, so he was able to tell investigators pretty quickly who had it that night. The man who had it on the night of her murder was Lucius Boyd. Did he work there? Yes. Lucius was the maintenance man at the daycare center. Huh. So was this like a new job for him? I thought he was like still having issues or like working for the family. Yeah, I'm not really sure at what point he got this job, but he was having issues with this job too. Floyd noticed that during the time around Danya's death, Boyd hadn't returned the van like he was supposed to, but because nobody needed it, nobody really noticed that the van was missing at all. Officers found a purple laundry bag in the van, which matched the one found with Danya's body. They also noticed a box of tools was missing from the van, as well as a second laundry bag. Like the beginning of this episode illustrated, police were very aware of Boyd and weren't totally surprised to find that he was the one driving the van that night. It honestly is very interesting to me to know that he was hired as a janitor at a children's daycare facility with all of his past history with the law. I would have thought that even if he wasn't convicted, even with these arrests, it would be enough to not have him work around children. Yeah, I mean, violent arrests. Exactly. Lloyd knew about all of the arrests and all of his past, but he believed in innocent until proven guilty, so he decided to give Boyd a chance. 
On March 25th, they finally got the piece of evidence that would put Boyd behind bars. His DNA came back as a match from Danya's rape kit. He was arrested at his family's funeral home and brought in for questioning. During his interrogation, he claimed to have nothing to do with it, even saying he had memory loss and basically just completely denied his involvement altogether. The investigator kind of lost his patience and confronted Boyd by basically screaming at him, you're a cold-blooded killer without a conscience. He's not wrong. Nope. But at this, Boyd kind of hung his head and responded only with, what took you so long to catch me? Ugh. Followed only by, I want a lawyer. That is terrifying. Yep. They had a pretty strong intuition now that Boyd was the one responsible for Donya's murder, as well as potentially all the other ones. Not only did he live only f- a few blocks away from the gas station where Donya was kidnapped, but he also had no alibi for the night of the murder. In the past, he had been arrested seven times for everything from violent offenses like rape and murder, but had been acquitted in every single case. He had also been a prime suspect in no less than 10 murders and disappearances. Investigators wondered, was this finally the crime that they were going to catch him? They were nervous that he was going to slip through their fingers like he had on so many other occasions. Boyd's girlfriend said that she was out of town during the time of the attack, but police asked if she could take a look around her house and see if anything was missing. She agreed, and she told police that she was missing a yellow sheet and a brown sheet, the same colors as the one Danya was wrapped in. And I feel like that's a little bit random. I know this was like in the 90s, but I don't think a yellow and brown sheet would be sold together. Like if you're buying brown sheets, you would get two brown sheets and two yellow sheets. I don't think, like, I think it's pretty rare to find a brown and a yellow sheet and then find them missing and then find them on a dead body. Definitely agree. Police noticed that in the bedroom, the carpet was brown. The same carpet fibers that were found on Danya's body. They looked closer and under the bed, they found blood stains. They were later able to match the fibers from the apartment to the ones on Danya's body. The fingerprints on the plastic bag did not match Boyd, but they did match Boyd's girlfriend and their son. Since the trash bags were from her house, it definitely made sense for her fingerprints and her son's fingerprints to be on them. And it gave them a solid, like, they knew that Boyd was in this house, trash bags were in this house. It was a it was a total connection. That is like super scary to think that he did all of that in his girlfriend's apartment. Yeah, and there was blood still on the carpet. Yeah, that she didn't even notice. Nope. The tire impressions on the sheet matched the one one of the tires on the daycare's van. They also found that there was a saw missing from that toolbox, and the saw would have matched that strange bruise on Danya's forehead. A torque wrench was also missing from the van. It was essentially a screwdriver with a top that was shaped like a star. They believed that this was the instrument that gave her all of her wounds and ultimately led to her death. 
They took teeth impressions from Boyd and they concluded that they would expect teeth like Boyd's teeth to have made the marks on Danya's body. However, you know, know, we've already said our spiel about teeth impressions. But the DNA under Danya's fingernails also matched Boyd. Investigators believe that because of how Boyd was dressed and the fact that he was associated with a church, Danya trusted him. He was a lady killer. He knew how to schmooze and he knew what to say to make a woman trust him. Once she accepted his offer, he grabbed the saw and hit her in the head. He brought her back to his apartment where he raped and tortured her. He wrapped her in the sheets and then the plastic bag and dumped her in an, in an industrial park. When he drove away, he ran over her body without a care in the world. I mean, at this point, this crime being like so brutal, it's almost like he was just wanting to get caught. Like he went to his own apartment or his girlfriend's apartment, um, really didn't even clean up. He had the possession of the van. Like it's almost like he wanted it get caught at this point like he was so tired of doing all of these terrible things that or he just never had to be careful because investigators never gave him any peace of mind like they didn't really look that hard yeah i mean there were multiple times he could have been caught he could have been in prison for the rape with the knife but the police officer literally didn't care and that was so brazen they had the weapon right there there in their hands yeah And the investigator still didn't do anything about it. Anyway, the evidence from this case conclusively proved that he was the only one in the world who could have done this. Danya's sister said, quote, The only consolation that I see from this is that my sister was a gift to us, and God gave her as a gift, and after so many years, he took her back. Terrible. That's really sad. Absolutely terrible. In January of 2002, Lucius Boyd was convicted of Danya's murder and was sentenced to death. Investigators believe that Boyd killed two other women that mysteriously disappeared after he was in contact with them. Physical evidence doesn't lie. People do. And they just didn't have enough in some of these cases. When Edna Bergs found out that her ex was a killer, she was shocked, but she did have some thoughts as to why he might have snapped. Boyd was becoming older. He was so used to his lady killer ways, so handsome and smooth talking, but maybe he was kind of losing his edge, you know? Maybe his tricks weren't working as well as they used to, and maybe he wasn't able to get as many women as he once was, which made him snap and start getting women a different way yeah i mean definitely possible his father had also been a huge part of his life and when he died it might have been too much for him and kind of made boyd lose control but at the same time i'm not sure that anybody really knows when the killing started or when the rape started because they're not even sure at this point if he started out as a killer and then became a rapist who killed or if he started out as a rapist who became a killer. Because they can't even conclusively pinpoint which crimes. Timeline. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure. Boyd has never come forward or answered any questions. His only response is, quote, you'll have to ask my attorney. He has never admitted to any of this. 
and he refuses to answer anything. In 2002, like I said, Boyd was sentenced to death row, but in 2017, he was appealing his sentence. It turns out that June 24th, 2002 was the cutoff to determine who would be entitled to new sentence hearings. This was determined by, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court, but this cutoff was only three days after Boyd had been sentenced. So he was trying to be like, oh, like, this came three days after my sentence. I should be eligible for a new sentencing. As far as I know, this has not happened, and he's still on death row. The worst part about this case is that there were so many opportunities that he could have been stopped. So many lives that could have been different if he had just been caught or convicted for one of these crimes. Just think about his second wife. Yeah. I mean, that happened so long ago, and it was clear that he was violent. But nothing ever came of it. Yeah, I mean, he would have been in jail, like, easily for those things. And maybe this spree doesn't ever happen. And even if it was for three years, that's three lives that would have been different. Because he attacked those three separate people, murdering one of them in that three-year span. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, Definitely a lot to take in with this guy. Yeah, it's a lot. It was a really big case. I didn't realize what I was getting into when I watched the episode. Um, but it's very interesting. One last point that I'll leave us up off on to kind of you know, lighten our spirits maybe a little bit. Danya's middle name was Hope. Wow. And it was Hope that gave the investigators the motivation to solve this crime. The word Hope, but also the hope that this case would finally be the one that they would catch him. And it was. It's kind of chilling. Yeah, it is. Anyway, we hope that you guys enjoy this episode um, and we'll be back soon with our next one. It will also be one of the Killer Collection episodes, so I hope that you're enjoying these. Stay tuned. Yep. Talk to you soon. Bye.